Alright, well hey, good morning church. Good to see you again. Um, in case you and I haven't met yet, uh, my name is Cole Thomas, and I'm the student pastor here at Hibernia. And if you're joining us late or if you're watching online, um, this is a really special Sunday uh, for multiple reasons. Um, the first of which, how about that incredible testimony from the baptism? Well, can we praise God one more time for that? It's amazing what a simple invite to church can do to change the eternal outcome for an entire family. So we glorify God for that. And then we're also celebrating um, our graduates, our seniors graduating high school. And so we're so thankful for y'all. We love you guys. Absolutely. We should praise God for them. So, and I'm honored uh, that I get to be here and that I get to open up the Word of God with you guys this morning. Um, so that's what we're going to do. And uh, so if you don't like the preaching this week, come back next week. It'll be a lot better. Um, so go to Matthew chapter 25 if you have a Bible, um, or look on next to you with someone who does. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk verse by verse through the text. We're going to break it down and talk about what it means and apply it. So that's Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30. And so before we do that, let me pray for us and let's ask God to help us to understand what we're about to read. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious and holy God. Lord, you demonstrated your love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Father God, I pray that as we sit under the preaching of your word this morning, Father God, I pray that we would have the affections of our hearts stirred towards greater love, towards greater understanding, and towards greater commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, might we leverage all that we have for your glory and your kingdom. We pray these things in your Son's heavenly and precious name. Amen. Currently, right now in the world, the population is right at about 8 billion people across 195 countries with 6,909 known languages. So that's a lot. That's impressive. And do you know what the most universally understood word in the world is? It's the word okay. Just okay. Do you know what the second word is? This will surprise you. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is the second most understood word in the entire world across 8 billion people, 195 countries, and 6,909 different known languages. That's in, someone's excited about Coca-Cola. That's, that's very, very impressive. But do you know what that means? It means people have leveraged significant amounts of their lives. People have leveraged significant amounts of money for the advancement and the propagation of Brown sugar water. That's all it is. I know that there's cherry flavored and vanilla flavored and all these different flavors, but at the end of the day, when you boil it down, it's just brown sugar water. That's all Coca-Cola is. It's brown sugar water. But it, it, it amazes me that people have leveraged their entire lives. People have emptied bank accounts in order to advance brown sugar water to people from every country and across every language. It blows my mind. And I think what's helpful to think about this is Paul's words from Romans chapter 14, verse 12, because there Paul says this, the apostle Paul says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God, meaning there's going to be a day when all of us, we stand before the sovereign king of the universe who gave you the breath in your lungs, who's given you the life that you now live. And how sad would it be to stand before him and say, Lord, I gave everything for brown sugar water. It sounds trivial and it sounds ridiculous, and it's because it is. It's because it is. But the reality, church, is this. If you and I leverage our lives for anything less than the glory of God and reaching people who are far from God, we're wasting it on something as trivial as brown 
sugar water. Hebrews 4.13, the author of Hebrews 4.13 says this. He says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Across the scriptures, we see this reality that all people are accountable to God for what God has given to them. And one day we will all stand before the sovereign king of the universe and give an account of our lives before the king. And that's the exact point that Jesus is going to make in this passage that we're going to study this morning. So the main point of this sermon, the main point of this message, and the main point of this text is this, in case you're taking notes. It's everyone will be accountable to God for what God has given them. Everyone will be accountable to God for what God has given them. And to kind of set this passage up a little bit so you know what was going on before we get to this, uh, to verse 14. In chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus and his disciples, it's a few days before Jesus is about to be crucified, and he and his disciples, they take a hike. They take a hike up to the Mount of Olives. And towards the top of this mountain, uh, Jesus gives a sermon on his second coming. He gives an entire sermon on his second coming. And it actually starts with a question. It starts with a question that one of his disciples asked him. They say, Jesus, how's the world going to end? How is all this going to kind of shake out? And what Jesus does to answer his question launches into a full-on sermon that covers two chapters of scripture. That's our Lord. And he, um, and the point of chapter 24 Jesus is making is that, because he's talking about all these signs, he's talking about earthquakes, he's talking about wars and rumors of wars, the abomination of desolation. He's talking about all these things. But y'all, the main point he's making is this. He's coming back. He's coming back. It's not to put together these complex charts, graphs, or timelines to try to figure it out. The main point is that Christ is coming back, and every knee will bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. And in that day, the most universally understood term is Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, the point of chapter 24, the application for us is this, that you and I, How we live between Christ's first and second coming has eternal consequences. How you and I live between Christ's first and second coming has eternal consequences. And then from chapter 24, moving into chapter 25, where our parable is, Jesus gives three stories. He gives three illustrations or three parables. And in case you're brand new to church or brand new to Christianity or you're just kind of exploring what it looks like to study the Bible, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so what Jesus does in chapter 25 is he gives us three earthly stories with a heavenly meaning about his second coming, about what it's going to be like when he returns. And so the first parable is the parable of the ten virgins. And the main point that you need to know from that is we need to accept the invitation to follow Jesus while the invitation is open. We need to accept the invitation while the invitation is open. Right now, my wife and I on our refrigerator, it is covered with invitations to graduations and grad parties. Just, I'm sure, like yours is too right now during this time of year. And the point is, on that invite card, there's a date. If I try to attend and accept this invitation after that date, that invitation is no longer good for anything. Same is true. We don't know when he's coming back, but we do know the invitation is open, so we should accept it while the invitation stands. The second parable, the parable of the talents, the one that we're studying this morning, is about how faithfulness to Jesus in this life will be rewarded, and neglect to follow him will be punished. 
And then the third parable, the third earthly story with a heavenly meaning, is the parable of the sheep and the goats. How when Christ returns, he's going to separate people into two categories, the sheep and the goats. The sheep are those who have heard heard the gospel, responded with faith and repentance, improved at their Christ disciples by keeping his commands. The goats are those who either professed Christ with their lips and denied him with their lives, or those who never came to know Christ in the first place. So those are the three parables, and what this passage does, y'all, is it really, it gets up close and personal. The scriptures always get in our business, and they make us answer a question, and this passage is putting this question before us. Are you and will you leverage every area of your life for the glory of God? Are you and will you leverage every area of your life for the glory of God? Because church, you have no idea how much God wants to do in you and through you. You have no idea how much he wants to do in our church and through our church. He wants to accomplish his goals through you. He wants to use you as an integral part of his plan to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. He's given us a biblical church. He sovereignly placed you in this church. And by the way, whether you're a first-time guest or you've been here for a long time, I want you to know this is a great church. And I'm not saying that because they pay me. I'm saying that because I genuinely love this place. I love these people. I love this church. I love our pastoral staff. And let me tell you, you are in a good biblical church. God has given us so many resources. He's given us his word. He's given us access to the scriptures. He's given us the ability to understand it. He's given us significant amounts of money. He's given us relationships, job opportunities, influence, all to be leveraged for his glory. So why would we spend it and waste it on our own comfort? Are you willing to leverage every area of your life for his mission? Because this parable teaches us this morning that because everyone will be accountable to God for what God has given them, we must leverage every area of our life for the glory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus does, uh, my outline is simple. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Jesus is the best preacher. He's the best storyteller. And Jesus unfolds this parable in three scenes. The first scene is a common opportunity given. The second scene is different investment strategies. And the third scene is the master's judgment. So that's what we're going to follow. So let's pick up uh, in verse 14. Jesus says this, Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Okay, so see that word it. It's the second word of this verse. That word it refers to the kingdom of heaven. Because if you go back up to the first verse of chapter 25, Jesus starts his parables by saying, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. So just to not repeat himself, Jesus just says it. For the kingdom of heaven, it will be like this. It's like a man going on a journey. So Jesus is comparing himself to this businessman. The businessman has left resources for his employees to use and invest while the master goes away on a journey. And so in the same way, Jesus has left us resources. He's given us, he's given us spiritual opportunities. He's given us the gospel. He's given us significant amounts of money, time, resources to leverage for his glory until he returns. And so that's what this is saying. And also, if you've got a pen or if you've got a pencil and you can write in your Bible, circle that word servants. Circle the word servants. Because this word, in the Greek, it's the word doulos. It's the word doulos. And that word, the literal translation is slave. 
The literal translation of this word is not servant, but slave, which is really a better translation. And it's not like slavery, like whenever you think about the Civil War era slave trade. That's not the concept being described here. You see, a slave in the first century, it was actually a radically different idea. Slaves in the first century, they could be doctors, they could be teachers, they could own property, they could have, uh, they could purchase their freedom, they could earn money, they could be all these different professions. And so it's much more of a, of a employee and a boss relationship. The New Testament just didn't have that language to apply to it, but that's what's being described here. So the key to understanding the parable though, the key to understanding this entire passage, and I would also say this, the key to live a successful life for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the key to leveraging all that you have for the glory of God is you have to understand this, so don't miss this. Whose property were the servants in charge of? It wasn't theirs. Verse 14 says, the master entrusted to them his property. The master entrusted his property to them. When I was a kid uh, and I lived at home with my parents uh, and I was old enough to be left alone, my parents would often tell me, Cole, you're the man of the house. That sounds pretty good. And my parents would go away for a little while. And basically, I had two requirements, to keep the dog alive and not let the house burn down. And so if I did those two things, I was doing all right. I was doing all right by the time my parents came home. But just because I was the man of the house, that did not mean that I owned it. I did not own that house. I did not pay rent. I did not pay mortgage. I did not pay for the clothes on my back. I did not pay for the food on my plate. Parents, you can tell your kids this after the service if you want. But I did not own it. My job was just to maintain it and to do well with it until they returned. And y'all, the same is true. In the same way, God has entrusted to us his property to be stewards of our time, money, relationships, and everything we have until he returns because it all belongs to him. That's what we see. Verse 15 says this. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So what verse 15 shows us is that not everyone has the same level of responsibility. We're given different levels of responsibility according to the ability uh, that the Lord thinks we can handle. And so that word talent, by the way, that doesn't refer to like our English definition of talent. When we hear talent, we think of natural gifts and abilities But that's not what that word refers to. The word talent here actually refers to a unit of measurement. It's like, it's like a weight. And so one talent is 75 to 100 pounds of either silver or gold. So that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So when it says that he gave them one, five talents, two talents, or one talent, he's saying that he's giving them 75 to 100 pounds of gold. And by the way, uh, this measures out, some scholars estimate to be about a million dollars per talent. So this master's making bank. He's handing out five million, two million, and one million to his servants. And so the point is this, though. There's different levels of responsibility, but they all have the common opportunity, and they all have the same mission to invest it for the master and to earn a reward and a return. You see, some of us, some of us are business professionals. Some of us are doctors. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are construction workers. Some of you are accountants. Some of you are stay-at-home moms. Some of you are even students in school or just graduating high school. But the point is this. Regardless of what your role is, regardless of what your level of responsibility is, we all have a common mission and we all have the same opportunity to invest what we have to take the gospel to people who are far from God and to teach them to follow Jesus. There is no greater reward, there is no greater calling in life than to know the God of the universe and make his name known to others. There's no greater privilege. And this is important. 
Because we live in an outsourcing society. If we have a plumbing issue, we call the plumber. If we have an electrical issue, we call the electrician. If we want to get our kids trained for the sport, we call the coach. So we think if we have spiritual issues, we should call the pastor. But here's what the scriptures teach us. And here's what, from cover to cover, from Revelation, from, from Genesis to Revelation, here's what the scriptures teach us. That we have different responsibilities, but we are called to be disciple makers. Your primary identity is not your profession. Your primary identity is not your relationship to your spouse. Your primary identity, if you're in Christ, is that you are a disciple and you just happen to teach. You just happen to be an accountant. You just happen to be a doctor. You just happen to be retired. You just happen to be a stay-at-home mom. But every single one of us, we have a common opportunity to leverage all that we have for the glory and majesty and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. What matters is that we're faithful. Paul says it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So regardless of your level of responsibility, we're all called to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us to take the gospel to people who have never heard it and to teach people how to follow Jesus. Church, there's no greater calling. It's simple, but it's profound. And so this next scene, so that's the first scene, a common opportunity. The next scene unfolds with the different investment strategies taken. So the master has entrusted his resources. Now Jesus tells us what the servants do with their master's resources. So this is scene two. This is scene two. It says this in verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also the one who had the two talents made two talents more. So without hesitation, what we see is the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, they immediately get to work. They immediately get to work. They recognize the urgency and the importance to do what their master instructed them to do. And the question for us is this. Do we have the same level of urgency about our father's mission as these servants did about what their master had called them to do? Are we about our father's business the same way these servants were about their master's? Because y'all, if you know that God has strategically placed you around people who are far from him, if God has given you a considerable amount of money, influence, and relationships, why would we wait to use all that? You don't have to, you don't have to sit around and wonder what God's will for your life is. God's will for your life is that you know him and that you make him known to others. If you're in a work environment where you're surrounded by people who are far from God, you don't have to wonder what God's will for you is there. It's to leverage those relationships, to to share the gospel with them, that they might come to know Christ. That's the mission that we're all given. So why would we wait? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And one thing that's really, I think we need to observe and notice here is that both of the servants, both the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant, both, both earn 100% profit in the exact same way. Verse 17 says, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. That phrase in verse 17, so also, a better translation would be in the same manner. In the same way that the first guy made five talents more, the same guy made two talents more. And here's what this means for us. God has a method for how we're to win people far from God. 
God has a method for how we should reach people who are far from him. And it's not through emotional experiences. It's not through really practical teaching that anyone could use. It's through the preaching of the gospel. And so turn over two pages to chapter 28, very briefly. Turn over a few pages to chapter 28 for just a second. And so let me get, let me get technical with you just for a minute. So hang with me. Look at chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. You know this as the Great Commission, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So if you have a pen, underline the words make disciples. In the Greek, that's the verb matheteo, which is the primary verb, the primary imperative, the primary command in those verses. The command to go, the command to baptize, and the command to teach, that's the roadmap for how you fulfill the command to make disciples. So what's God's will for your life? That you go to people who are far from God, that you share the gospel with them, and for those who believe, you baptize them, and then you teach them how to follow Jesus. That's God's mission. That's God's method. We have no right to change it or to tamper with it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Church, we have a treasure. We have the gospel. We have the only thing that can cure someone from the punishment, the ailment of sin. We would be so selfish to keep it to ourselves and to not take it to those who don't know Jesus. Our method is the Great Commission, and we give them the pure, unadulterated gospel, and we depend on God to save them. We have to be faithful to go, and we trust God to be faithful to save. And by the way, if you're in Christ, this will be your lifestyle. If you truly know Jesus, you will be evangelistic. Even if you're shy, even if you're reserved, you will have a desire to share the gospel with people who are far from him. Jesus says this in John 15, 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So what Jesus is saying here is this. A branch, a branch cannot bear fruit unless it's attached to the vine. And what that means is a Christian cannot produce obedience unless they're in Christ. So if someone professes Christ with their lips, but their life is totally void of any desire to take the gospel to people who are far from them, it's evidence that they never knew the master. It's evidence that they're not in the vine. And it's important to assess yourself with scripture to actually measure your life up against the word of God and say, how does this measure up? And friend, let me say, if you are far from God, if there is no fruit in your life, even a professing Christian, it might be evidence that you don't know the master, that you don't know Christ. But the good news is that you can. The good news is that a broken off branch can be grafted into the vine. And if you're far from God, you can be brought into relationship with Jesus Christ if you repent and believe in the gospel. So this is important because the master is going to assess our investment strategies. And those who know the master will leverage all of their life for the glory of God. But then we see the third servant. This was his investment strategy. So look with me at verse 18. It says this, But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Y'all, there are so many people who sit in biblical churches like ours. There are so many people who hear the gospel on a weekly basis 
who sit in Bible study groups every week, but they neglect every opportunity and they, to get, they get to share the gospel. They neglect intentional study of God's word outside of Sundays, and they spend all the resources on making their lives more comfortable. Because the common thought kind of goes, follows this logic. I'm going to go to a good school. I'm going to get a good degree. I'm going to get a good paying job. I'm going to make bank. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have nice kids. I'm going to have a nice house. I'm going to drive nice cars. I'm going to have an early retirement. I'm going to die a peaceful death and hopefully I'm not going to go to hell and my biggest prayer of the week is thank God it's Friday that's a waste that's a waste that's burying your master's treasure in the ground that's a waste you see because in our sin nature we want to put ourselves at the center and we want our lives to revolve around us we put ourselves in the center and we want everything to revolve around our wants our needs our desires All of that. It's why we see statistics like how the average American spends seven hours and four minutes looking at a screen every day. It's why we see statistics like how the average American also spends $18,000 a year on non-essential items. Things like online shopping, eating out, subscription boxes, impulse purchases. And the same 38% of Americans also say they don't have enough money for a retirement plan. Because they're wasting their opportunity. And I know there are different professions that require uh, differences when it comes to how much time you spend on a screen and things like that. But for the vast majority of Americans, man, to spend $18,000 a year on non-essential items and then to not say you don't have enough for a retirement account, it's because you're investing your opportunities and your resources in things that don't last. We love to spend time and money on our own comforts. We want to be at the center of it all. But what we need, church, we need a Copernican revolution of the soul. Nicholas Copernicus is the guy who discovered the heliocentric model for our solar system. Meaning, because before him, prior to him, everyone thought that the earth was at the center and everything spun and revolved around the earth. And he was the first guy to propose, no, I don't think it's like that. I think the sun is at the center and everything else orbits around the sun. And so what you and I need for our souls is a Copernican revolution for our soul to see that we are not at the center. We were not created to be at the center, but Christ is at the center. Because what the gospel does, the gospel transforms us and opens our eyes to see that the life that God has given us is not about us. The life that God has given us is not about us. It's about him. And the crazy paradox is this. If you live the life that God has given you like it's about you, you end up miserable. If you live the life that God has given you like it's all about you, you end up miserable and you bury your master's treasure in the ground and you waste it. But if you realize that the life that God has given you is not about you, but it's about him, you actually find your deepest joy and your deepest happiness. Not because of your circumstances, but because of the Savior who saved you and loved you and you orchestrate your life around him. And so the question that all of us has to answer is this. If someone were to audit our lives, if the Lord were to audit our lives right now, if we could put before God our screen time, if we could put before him our bank statement, if we could put before him our interactions with people who are far from God, if we could put before him our conduct at work, if we could put before him the way that we treat our spouse, the way that we treat our children, would he say that we're leveraging our life for the glory of God or wasting it on our comforts? If your life could be audited, if my life could be audited, would it be said, yes, it's leveraged for the glory of God, or hey, you're wasting this on your own comfort? And the next scene takes us to how the master judges these investment strategies. 
So we saw two investment strategies. We saw the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant leverage all that they have for their master. And the third servant, who had the one talent, buried it in the ground. And so now scene three, this is the master's judgment. He judges their investment strategies. So look with me down at verse 19. It says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. What this verse says is this. We've already said it earlier in the sermon, but every single one of us one day will stand before the sovereign king of the universe and we will give an account for the way that we have lived our lives. The God who put the breath in our lungs, the God who's given us the life that we live, we will be accountable to him for how we've lived our lives. And also, let me take a moment here to clarify what this does not say. So I need you to hear this. This is not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying that if you try really hard, that if you pray enough, that if you attend church enough, that if you share the gospel enough, that if you're good enough, then God will accept you on the basis of your performance. That's not what this passage is saying, and that's not the gospel. What this passage is saying is that those who have come to know Christ, those who have been transformed by the gospel, those who recognize that God is holy and righteous, meaning God is free from sin and he's morally perfect, He's totally and completely perfect, and we are not. We are vile sinners who have rebelled against God. We've rejected his design for our lives, and we've spent everything on our own personal comforts and desires. And we deserve, for that, eternal separation from God and hell. I love y'all way too much to not tell you the truth. The punishment for sin is eternal death in hell. And God loved you too much to let you go there because he gave his son, Jesus Christ, who is the sinless son of God, who lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I deserved and he was buried and he rose from the grave and offers eternal life to anyone and everyone that comes to trust in him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And those who do come to know Christ, they get plugged into the vine, they're connected to the vine and they bear fruit. So when Christ returns, you don't have to be afraid because you'll be accepted not on the basis of your good works, but on the basis of Christ's good works. Because when you repent and trust in the gospel, when you repent and trust in Christ, an incredible exchange happens. Christ took all of your sin on the cross and you earned the reward for his righteousness. He took the punishment for your mishaps and for your sin so you could have the reward for his perfect life as if you had lived it. That's the beautiful part of the gospel. If that doesn't make your heart explode, you're not getting it. This wonderful substitution that Christ made for us so that we could have a new relationship with God, a restored relationship with God, and we could be made new creations and live life according to God's design with him at the center. And when we stand before him, you'll be accepted, not because of your good works, but because of Christ's good works. And a good diagnosing question is this. If Christ were to return right now, would you be overjoyed or would you be afraid? If you were to return right now, would you be overjoyed or afraid? Because if you're in Christ, it should overjoy you because you'll be accepted by your master. And like we said earlier, if you're in Christ, you'll produce fruit. And if you aren't, you won't. And so let's keep reading. This is, this is the interaction between the servants and the master. Verse 20 says this, And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, they were the first ones to run to the master. And of course they were. They were excited. They wanted to see the master's response to their good work. So I don't know. I don't know if you can relate to this or not. Um, but sometimes whenever my wife, uh, whenever she goes out of town or whenever she is uh, at work one day and I have an off day, I will clean a random part of the house and not say anything, hoping that she'll notice. Like two weeks ago, I scrubbed the bathroom clean. Like it was, I'm talking, it was spotless. Like it has never been that fresh since we moved in. And I didn't say a word. I didn't say a word. Well, and I got permission from her to share this too. So anyways, I leave the house to go. <laughs> I leave the house to go do something. I can't remember what it was. Um, and then she gets home before me and I'm waiting like she's about to send me a text. She's going to notice the bathroom is spotless. And I get a text and it's a picture and it's not of the bathroom. <laughs> In our entryway, there's a vent that's like slightly separated from the wall. <laughs> and she said, hey, you forgot to fix this. Huh. <laughs> Just keep walking to keep walking to the back and take a right. You'll you'll forget about the vent. <laughs> Just go check it out. Um, no, I love my wife. She, uh, I love her dearly, and I, I do. I want to surprise her, and so I do those things often. And I and I won't say anything because I want to see her reaction when she gets home. And that's the exact response that these servants had to their master. They were so excited for the master to get home because they wanted to see his response. And also, so notice this. So look at verse twenty. It says, and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more. Circle that word bringing in your Bible. That word bringing is actually the same verb that's used throughout the scriptures to describe when someone presents a sacrifice to God. So this is really, really cool. Your life of faithfulness to God, your life of faithfulness at work, your life of faithfulness to raise and develop your children, your faithfulness to love and steward your family well, your faithfulness to share the gospel with people who are far from God, that's a sacrifice offered to God. These servants are essentially saying, Lord, my life was completely and totally leveraged for you. By your grace, I didn't deserve what you've given me, but I've made five more talents and I'm ready to put it back in your hands. Here you go. And what's really great about his response is if you see, Master, you delivered to me five talents. So notice this. He doesn't start with what he did. He starts with what his master gave him. The immediate spotlight wasn't on, hey, Master, look what I've done. The spotlight was on, Master, look what you've given me. They had a heart posture of gratitude, not entitlement. They were looking so forward to their master's pleasure. They recognized that the master was the source of all the resources, and they couldn't wait to put it back in the master's hands. They couldn't wait for it. They had a heart of gratitude, not entitlement. And I love, I love the master's response. This should be enough to make your heart explode, because it says this in verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll set you over much. Do you know what the reward for good work is? More work. (laughs) And we laugh because we think, why would that be the reward? Well, here's something that I think is really cool to think about. In the Garden of Eden, work was a part of the creation mandate before the fall. We were created with the capacity to enjoy work. Because of sin, the curse stained our ability to enjoy what we do with our lives. But when Christ returns, that curse is removed. And I love this, that we're all going to have work in heaven. Except, Pastor Scott, you and I are going to have to find new jobs, man. They don't need preachers in heaven. 
the best preacher's already there, Jesus. So we're going to have to find, I don't know what we're going to do, but it's going to be awesome. But I love this. And then I love when he says, enter into the joy of your master. What's the joy of your master? It's seeing Jesus face to face. The sovereign king who spoke all things into existence came as a man, died on the cross in our place, rose from the grave as a demonstration of his love for you in order to bring you to eternal life. And we finally get to see him face to face. Our faith becomes sight. Let me ask you this. Does your heart long for that? Is that the motivation for everything that you do? Does that thought captivate your heart? Because if it doesn't, I'm afraid you're missing the point. His next, what Jesus does, is he turns to the assessment of the one who hid his master's money. And before we go there, I want to say one more thing. Notice this too. Each servant got the same commendation from the master. They had different amounts of profit, but they got the same commendation. They got the same praise. What that communicates is this. It doesn't matter if you lead one, ten, or a thousand people to Christ. The point is this. Were you faithful to share the gospel? Were you faithful with the opportunities that you were given? It's not about your outcome. It's not about the profit that you earn. It's not about how many people you lead to Jesus. It's not about how many people you teach and train to follow Christ, which the more the merrier, but God is going to judge you based on faithfulness to that, not quantity. And so that's his assessment of their investment strategy. Now, verse 24, he turns to the investment strategy of the third servant. He says, he also who received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, what you have is yours. Look at how he justifies his his bad investment strategy. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. That word hard man, that phrase right there, that means uh, merciless, unjust, and harsh. So he says, Master, you're harsh, you're unjust, you're merciless. And then the next phrase, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Do y'all know what that means if you reap where you did not sow and gather where you did not scatter seed? It means you're a thief. It means you stole someone else's crop. So he calls the master an unjust, harsh thief. He doesn't know the master. He does not know the master the way that we know the master. Because if he had knew the master, he would have leveraged all that he had for his glory. He would have leveraged all that he had to earn a return to present to him. His view of the master was skewed. And don't miss this. That's the same temptation you and I face when we base our view of God on something other than scripture. If we base our view of the master uh, outside of how the master has revealed himself in the scriptures, we miss it. I tell our students this all the time. Don't get your theology from TikTok and Instagram. Just don't. It's not a good idea. If you want sound, good biblical doctrine and theology, then why don't you read the book itself? Read the word of God because God has revealed himself only and exclusively in the word of God and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you know what the best part about that is? We, each and every single one of us, we have access to know what the master's like. 
Because according to Exodus 34, 6, we know that our master is not harsh. Because according to Exodus 34, 6, our master is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. According to Deuteronomy 7, 9, we know that our master keeps his covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations. We know that according to Psalm 5, 4, our master does not delight in evil or wickedness. We know that according to Psalm 8, 3 through 4, that he created the entire universe, but that he cares for you. We know that according to Psalm 1611, that our master gives undeserving sinners fullness of joy and eternal pleasures to those that he saves. We know according to Isaiah 118 that you and I, our sins are as scarlet, but our master has promised to wash us white as snow. We know that according to Matthew 6, 8, that our master is so good, he knows what you need before you ask him. Our master's so good because we know according to Matthew 6.33, he promises to provide for our needs as we seek him first. We know that our master is good because according to Matthew 11.28-30, through 30, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you're beat down, he does not place an unbearable load upon your shoulders. He invites you into rest. We know that our master is good because according to Ephesians 1.4, he chose to love you before the foundation of the world, before you could ever choose to love him back. We know that our master is a good father because according to Luke eleven thirteen, he's a good father who gives good gifts to his children. We know that according to Philippians 1, 6, that what our master started in us, he's going to bring to completion. And according to John three sixteen, we know our master loves us because he demonstrated it in punishing his son on the cross in our place and raising him from the grave so that anyone who believes will be saved. Our master is not harsh. He's anything but harsh and unjust and a thief. If anything, he's loving, he's merciful, he's kind, he's giving. He satisfies our deepest desires. He's a good master. But the third servant did not know him like that. Because if he had, because that's the master that you want to leverage your entire life for. That's the master that you want to give everything to make his name great. That's the master that you want to leverage all that you have for all that he is. And this is how the master responds to the third servant. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. In no way affirming this third servant's charge against the master. He says, even if that were true, even if I were unjust, merciless, and harsh, even if I was a thief, that should have motivated you at least out of fear to put my money in the bank so I could at least have a little return when I returned. But the point is this, you never knew me. You never knew me. Because if you, if you had known me, you would have leveraged all that you had for my glory. In church, the reality is this. Choosing personal security over risking it all for the glory of God are incompatible lifestyles. To live for your own personal comfort, to live for your own personal agenda, and to live for the glory of God are mutually exclusive and they're incompatible. You cannot pursue your worldly, earthly comfort and the glory of God at the same time. You cannot. You cannot serve two masters. You will either hate one, you either love one and hate the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. To be a disciple is to put your life at risk for the glory of God. But there is no greater risk because there is no greater reward. And it's a guaranteed risk. If you risk it all for the glory of God, you find your life. And Jesus ends the parable with the main point, that everyone will be accountable to God for what God has given them. Because Jesus says this, this is the main point of the parable. For to everyone who has, more will be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he does have will be taken away. And cast the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus sets up a stark contrast here. What he's trying to show us is this, that the person who has rejected the master, they spend eternity apart from the master. And they have absolutely nothing. They have absolutely nothing. Because the reality is this, those who know the master, those who come to know Christ, their lives will be transformed. It's impossible to know Christ and to not have a transformed life. It's impossible to know Christ, to be grafted into the vine, and to not bear fruit. If we profess Christ with our lips, but deny him with our lives, it's evidence that we never actually came to know him. And according to verse 30, the reference to the outer darkness, that's a reference to hell. And when it says weeping and gnashing of teeth, hell is a place of people who are weeping over the missed opportunity to repent and believe in the gospel. And hell is a place where people are gnashing their teeth angry because they missed the opportunity to repent and believe in the gospel and leverage their life for the glory of God. Don't throw away your life. Don't throw away your life. Don't bury it in the ground. And what remains for each of us is this. How are you personally going to respond? This passage demands a response. This reality demands a response. Because whether you're a first-time guest this morning or whether you're a long-time attender or member of this church, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or retired or even graduating high school, are you and will you leverage your entire life for the glory of God? Will you leverage it all for his kingdom and for his glory and for the exaltation of his name? Because I would have to imagine, maybe for some of you, maybe right now you're realizing that you've never actually come to know the master. For some of you right now, you're realizing that you've never actually been transformed by the gospel because you've been pursuing your own personal comfort and not the glory of God, leveraging all that you have for all that he is. But friend, I want to encourage you because the invitation to come to know the master is open. The invitation to come to know Christ is open. If you turn from your sin, if you recognize that you are a sinner before a holy God and that you deserve only hell, but that God in his grace provided his son as your substitute on the cross, if you recognize that, and that he rose from the grave and turned from your sin and believe in him, you will be saved, you will come to know the master, and you will live a brand new life, a transformed life, one that's leveraged for the glory of God. And you will hear these words when you die, or Christ returns, well done, good and faithful servant. Everyone will be accountable to God for what God has given them. A fruitful life can only follow a repentant heart, and a life leveraged for the glory of God will only follow a life surrendered to his lordship. And in the words of Jim Elliott, a missionary who at the age of 29 gave his life for the Great Commission, said this. When talking about pursuing worldly comfort or the eternal glory of God, Jim Elliott said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And in the words of our Lord, in the words of Christ, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of the master, he is the one who will save it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you've spoken to us through your word this morning. And Father God, I pray that we would respond with faith and repentance. God, I pray, Lord, for those who know you, God, that they would leverage all that they have for your glory. God, I pray that we would not be like the servant who buried our talent in the ground. But God, I pray that we would leverage all that we have for your glory in making disciples. 
And Father God, I pray for anyone who does not know you, God, that they would not waver, that they would repent of their sin and trust in Christ for salvation. And God, that they would have a transformation in the way that they live and bring glory to you in all that they do. Father God, bless this time of invitation. Might you be glorified now and forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.